1: With Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card.
0: The volume.
1: What's up, guys? It's Jason from Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel. Football season is here, and there is no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. It's my favorite sports gambling app out there. It's safe secure and easy to use. They have exclusive offers, tons of ways to play like spread and money line over unders team totals, same game parlays where you can combine multiple bets from the same game. My favorite feature is that cash-out feature. So if you already feel pretty good about your bet and you're in good shape but you don't want to lose whatever it is based on some stupid thing with garbage time at the end, you can cash out your winnings before the end of the game. Use promo code JASONT and download the FanDuel app today to make every moment more this football season. 21-plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana – Or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1 or visit slash chat in Connecticut, 1 800 Gambler, or visit slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia, 1 Stop in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee red line, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. We're hopping right back into the power rankings today with number 11, the Memphis Grizzlies. We'll be doing the power rankings today, tomorrow, and Friday this week. And then over the course of the next two weeks, we'll get through the rest of the top 10. And then after that, starting on the 30th, when the Washington Wizards play the Golden State Warriors, I believe in Japan, then we will begin our normal you know, tape breakdowns every single day. We'll be going into different lineups, different players, checking out on the rookies in preseason, what kind of schemes the teams are using, what we're learning. It's going to be all basketball from basically the start of October all the way through the middle of June, my favorite time of year. It is going to be a blast. Um, we also, for those of you who care at the very end of the show today, I'll go over some of the little pieces I have behind me in my studio. So you guys can learn a little bit more about myself before we get started. You guys know the drill, subscribe to the volumes, YouTube channel so You don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. So you don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, if you can't finish one of these videos and you can't get over to YouTube to finish it, you can always find them in audio form, wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And on that note, let's talk some basketball. So last year, the Memphis Grizzlies were 56-26. and They finished with the second seed. They were dominant with and without John Morant. There was a lot of hype surrounding how well they played without John Morant. A lot of strength of schedule stuff played into that. They ended up losing to the Golden State Warriors in the second round in six without John Morant, although they were getting pretty soundly outplayed with John Morant on the floor as well. They were fourth in offense during the regular season, sixth in defense, fifth in net rating. Um, And then they had a really interesting game five, a game that I picked. It's always funny. Warriors fans have been relentless uh, uh, against me this season because I picked against them a handful of times over the course of last year's playoff run. Uh, But I did get one big prediction right during that specific series. Game five, um, when Golden State went into Memphis, I expected them to get destroyed in buzzsaw fashion, and they did. That was kind of a, a really exciting moment for Grizzlies fans, just to show you how physically imposing their roster is, even when John Morant is not available. A ton of stuff to be optimistic about if you are a Grizzlies fan. This offseason, they traded DeAnthony Melton for Danny Green in a first-round draft pick. That was an interesting trade in the moment, but I actually kind of like it as long as the Intel from Danny Green himself that he believes he will play this year, as long as that Intel is correct. He did say on his uh, podcast that he expects to play this year. said some really interesting stuff i was I was reading about it this morning. He thinks that a lot of NBA players, uh, do some things over the course of their rehab that can cause rehab to take longer and that he's disciplined enough to avoid those things. I'd, I'd be really interested to hear him elaborate on that specific topic. I, I really like Danny Green. I covered him with the Lakers in 2020. Um, he can be a frustrating player at times because he's a little bit streaky, And he has some ugly mistakes over the course of games because he's not a good ball handler. So when he puts the ball on the floor, especially attacking closeouts or going up the floor in transition, he can make some pretty ugly mistakes. Uh, But I can say that in my year covering Danny Green, I thought he was an amazing role player. I loved having him on the team, and I think Memphis Grizzlies fans will love him. Overall, I think he's an above-average spot-up threat. So on the offensive end of the floor, that's great. He's a very competitive player, great crashing the defensive glass from the wing and on the offensive end as, as well when he has opportunities. And on the defensive end of the floor, he's one of the better role players in the league at guarding bigger, stronger wings. He can struggle a little bit with really quick and shifty players. He can get caught on screen sometimes because he's a little big. But I really like Danny Green. He's a great guy to throw <clears> – <throat> at any of the big strong wings you might have to guard to get out of the Western Conference, like a LeBron James or a Kawhi Leonard, so on and so forth. Big fan of Danny Green. I think the Memphis Grizzlies are going to like him. The other uh uh the other guy that they picked with as part of that trade was David Roddy. He's a very interesting like Gigantic, trunky uh, wings, a little bit short. He's about 6'5, 6'6 with shoes on, but he's 260 pounds, which, and he's got a lot of offensive polish, which will make him interesting. I don't know a ton about him. As you guys know, I'm not, I direct all my attention towards the league. I direct very little of my attention towards the draft. I pick up little things here and there from footage, but it's not something that I have. Uh, that I've invested a ton of time in. There are draft guys that that do better there. I will always, throughout the season, update you guys with what I think about these picks as I see them play basketball at this level. I do say, though, every time I see a big, strong wing like that, I get really interested about the prospect of them potentially guarding bigger, stronger wings because I think that's such a huge weapon, especially in a playoff series. They did lose Kyle Anderson in free agency to the Timberwolves And also in the first round, they drafted another wing named Jake LaRavia, a role player who is more of an off-ball type of player. Doesn't dribble the ball well, but he's pretty smart and just knows how to play basketball. He'll be an interesting guy. Um, the one thing that's going to be tricky there again is as the league has gone more towards five out, it's become more important than ever for guys to be able to dribble. That's not something he's great at, but again, don't know a ton about him. So I will be updating you guys over the course of the season. As I watch him play NBA basketball, they did trade two first round picks to move up only three spots to get him. I did think that was interesting. What that tells you is that their scouting uh, department is apparently very High on him. So that's kind of a bet or a gamble on their end. It'll be interesting to see if that pays off. And then, last but not least, for the offseason, they did lose Jaron Jackson uh, Jr. to a foot injury. Who knows how long that's going to keep him out? It'll be really interesting to see. That's going to be a big swing factor for them this season. So, their depth chart at the guard position, they have Tyus Jones, John ja Morant, Desmond Bain, and John Conchar. Desmond Bain and John Conchar are both kind of like wings, too. This team is really heavy on wings. Um, At the wing position, they also have Dylan Brooks, um, uh, Danny Green, Zaire Williams, Jake LaRavia, David Roddy, the two guys I just mentioned, and then Biggs, Jaron Jackson Jr., Stephen Adams, Brandon Clark, and Xavier Tillman. You're going to see a lot of Xavier Tillman and Brandon Clark, especially early in the season as Jaron Jackson Jr. is coming back from that injury. So moving to the offensive end of the floor, you guys know the drill. We're going to look at offense. We're going to look at defense. We're going to look at best-case scenario. We're going to look at worst-case scenario. And then we're going to look at the biggest X factor on the team. So um, I really like Taylor Jenkins. He's smart. He's super competitive. He's um, a little bit of an asshole and kind of like the best way to lead a basketball team. I'm a genuine believer that you have to have a little bit of an asshole streak in you. Even if you're a nice person off the court or away from your competition, Like I like the kind of people that – That are willing to kind of fudge that line between friend and foe when they're competitive. And Taylor Jenkins is that kind of guy. He really likes horns sets. This is the primary, like, kind of bread and butter of Memphis's offense. You know, John Morant brings the ball up the floor. And uh, you know, in late clock scenarios, they'll go four low and they'll let John Morant work off the dribble. But uh, to begin possessions, they love running out of horns. Now, there's we've talked about this before during the off season we were talking about what five out is and the principles of five out. But there are a bunch of like kind of core offensive concepts that teams kind of gravitate towards. For instance, like four high is you'll have two guys at the the high post and two guys on the high wing, or you'll have you know four low where both guys are on the block and two guys in the deep corner. You have like pistol sets where you have guys in the deep corner, guys up high, and one post player that's kind of operating out of the mid post, and usually will set a lot of ball screens and and uh, and dribble handoffs and things like that. Obviously, five out basketball, which we talked about during that video over the course of the summer, this team runs a ton of horn sets. So horn sets are you have your two post players, or sometimes you even mix guards in there. Memphis really likes to mix uh, Desmond Bain in there because he's so big and strong. He can be a a problem for screeners, and then guys don't like to switch that screen so they get good stuff out of it. But you have two guys at the high post, two guys in the deep corner. They run a ton of different stuff out of this. Sometimes they'll just have both guys step step up and set – you know, uh, screens on both sides of John Morant with a live dribble and he'll come off of those screens. Sometimes John Morant will hang with the high dribble uh, dribble out top and they'll cross screen for each other or run different actions as screeners off the ball, try to get guys going with the head of steam. And then everything tends to flow into a dribble handoff into whatever's coming out of the corner. So if they don't get something right away out of that set, let's say John Morant uh, is up top, Steven Adams comes up and sets a screen on his left side and he comes downhill and they contain him. Let's say Dylan Brooks is in the left corner. He will then come off of a dribble handoff. Steven Adams will then turn around again and screen for Dylan Brooks's man, and it just kind of flows into a dribble handoff. And then from there, it's just playing basketball. From there, it's just, what does the defense do? Does Dylan Brooks get downhill? Is he able to collapse things in the paint? Or is it one of those things where he goes all the way to the rim? From there, they just kind of play basketball. They have a lot of guys. This team... This team does struggle with ball handling, in particular. You know, outside of Tyus Jones and John Morant, they don't have a ton of guys that can create their own shot. Dylan Brooks is okay at it when he's when you ha- catch him on the right night, uh, but when the this team has a ton of guys that when you get them with an advantage they can either extend that advantage or score. So everything for this team comes down to that initial advantage. Now, as long as John Morant is on the floor and he can create that initial advantage, they do great. And that extended into the postseason. They scored about 115 points per possession in both series against Minnesota and that great Golden State defense when John Morant was on the floor. But their offense completely fell apart every time Ja Morant was off the floor because they struggled to create their own shot or to create that initial advantage without Ja. That's something, if you guys remember, that I was concerned about even before last year's postseason run, and it ended up <clears throat> being what uh, what beat them. One last note about the uh, the the horn sets is the concept of screening the screener. So everything... Everything in these sets starts with some sort of screen from the high post, right? Like either coming up and screening the top ball handler and John Morant or Tyus Jones, or a cross screen for Desmond Bain or whoever it is. But almost always, the guy coming off of that screen will come right into a screen or someone will screen for the screener. Essentially, just imagine a bunch of screens in rapid succession. Okay. The reason why that is such a effective basketball concept is for one, for uh, for teams that like to switch, it gets super confusing. Cause now it's not just like, okay, my guy comes and sets a screen. I'll take your guy. You take my guy. We're good. Right. That's easy. But if it's three screens or if I'm screening the screener, Now it gets a lot more complicated. Now it's more like, okay, which one of these two players am I going to switch onto? You know, which one is he getting my guy or is he getting my other teammate's guy? It can get really confusing for switching defenses. And then for teams that don't like to switch, it's just a matter of navigating screens. If you get over one screen and then immediately you run into another, it can get complicated. The the screen, the screener actions that they run out of that horn set gets lots of good stuff. So a lot of times when you have teams that struggle to score in the half court, and the Memphis Grizzlies are definitely one of those teams. According to Cleaning the Glass, the Grizzlies were 22nd in half court efficiency this year. Uh, Just a result of all those things I was just talking about. Lack of ball handling, relying too much on John Morant to create initial advantages. Guys that can create with an advantage but not create the advantage itself. That typically is going to lead to a team that struggles in the half court. That's what happened with the Memphis Grizzlies this year. Typically, in that type of situation, one of the best ways to counter that is to push and transition. Again, this is the 22nd best um, uh, half-court team, but this was the fourth best offense by offensive rating in the league this year, and they did that in transition. We're going to get to this more on the defensive end of the floor, but it's not just pushing the ball off of misses. It's not just pushing the ball off of makes. It's also forcing turnovers. This was a great defensive team that was extremely disruptive and caused a lot of turnovers that led to fast breaks. We will get to that more when we get to the defensive end of the floor. But according to NBA.com's tracking data, the Memphis Grizzlies ran more transition possessions than anybody in the entire league this year. They were fourth in pace overall, they were second in fast break points scored per game. Just in general, and, and you pick this up pretty quickly when you're watching them. John Morant likes to bring up the uh, bring the ball off the floor with as much pace as possible. He will push ahead to wings that run, but he's just trying to you know, come with enough pace that the transition defense will suck in to the painted area. Then he can kick out to guys like Bain and Brooks that can attack with an advantage. Again, everything is designed about trying to create that advantage so that their somewhat limited ball handlers can create for themselves in the chaos. And transition is the biggest way that they try to do that.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue, while you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings and are not available in every state. Coverage
1: is subject to policy terms and conditions. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Promo code HOOPS, H-O-O-P-S. That's com. promo code HOOPS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, and this is, again, to Taylor Jenkins and how smart he is. You, 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 as a basketball team, you have to, like, identify what your strengths are and identify what your weaknesses are and cater your strategy towards what your strengths are. This is a team that struggles in the half court, so getting out in transition is just smart. They are also the fourth most frequent dribble handoff team. All four of John Morant... Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson, and Dylan Brooks get over one point per possession on dribble handoffs. That's a lot of Steven Adams being a great screener, as well as Jaron Jackson and the threat that he is with the basketball. Um, They ran the fifth most actions off of screens. A lot of wide pin downs, especially out of horns, uh, like we were talking about earlier, as they're flowing out of stuff. This is a lot of Desmond Bain. He's one of the highest volume off-of-screen scorers that we have in the league right now. As you can expect, they don't run a ton of ISOs. They were 25th in ISOs per game this year. Only 0.87 points per possession on ISOs, which is pretty bad. John Morant's pretty solid, 0.99 points per possession. Jaron Jackson is slightly below average. Bain is super efficient, but on ridiculously low volume. According to the NBA's tracking data, he only ran 26 isolations all season. Again, that falls in line with what I was picking up on tape all season long uh, towards the end of the season when we became hoops tonight. You know, I really like Desmond Bain's game. Love his competitiveness. Love uh, what he can do defensively. Love his body type too. Is like kind of like a modern power wing. Great at attacking closeouts. He might be one of the best closeout attackers in the entire game of basketball. An outstanding shooter. Like just a just a knockdown jump shooter. But struggles to create his own shot. But again, that's smart to avoid isolation if that's not what you do best. They are a middle-of-the-pack pick-and-roll team by volume. They were 23rd in pick-and-roll efficiency. John Morant is pretty solid as a pick-and-roll ball handler, not excellent. Brandon Clark is their only kind of traditional rim-running threat in terms of a vertical spacer. It's not that Jaron Jackson can't do that. It's not that Steven Adams can't operate as a roll man. It's just not their strength. Um, so they avoid pick-and-roll a good amount. They were also 24th in post-up volume. That's not a part of their game. Uh, as far as John Morant goes, I want to send you guys to our player rankings video. I believe I had him in the 11 to 15 range. I think he was right around 13 or 14, maybe even 11. I can't remember, but, uh, uh, go further back into our YouTube feed. And there's like a solid 10, 15 minutes on John Morant and all of his strengths and weaknesses. I'm not going to get too far into it today. So you can go there if you want more content. Um, The main core principle or driving force of John Morant's success and in, in the way it propels the Grizzlies forward is he's just completely impossible to keep out of the paint. And that fundamentally is what makes everything work. The exciting part is that it translates to the postseason. Even when you look at what they did against that very good uh, uh, a Golden State Warriors defense and a pretty good Minnesota Timberwolves defense – In both of those series, they scored extremely well as long as Ja Morant was on the floor. What killed them in the Grizzlies series early on with Ja was defense. And then when Ja went out and they couldn't score, that's when it ended up killing them at that point. Desmond Bain, I just talked about him uh, a little bit earlier, uh, so I won't go any further. Jaron Jackson Jr. is a freak talent, uh, but he's kind of a bull in a china shop. He has a tendency when he gets the ball to just try to run everybody over and go to the rim. and that that leads to your textbook up and down NBA playoffs performance because there's as I talk about all the time on the show, there's a, there's a, a huge upside to physically imposing your will in a playoff environment. you know, everyone's allowed to hold, everyone's allowed to hand check. It's just a bloodbath of physicality. And when you have a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. who can drive Draymond Green to the rim and finish the way he did several times towards the end of that series, then he's going to bulldoze everybody in the league. The downside is is it gets predictable, and he does have a tendency to just over-penetrate into traffic, get himself into a mess, and turn the basketball over. He actually was really inefficient in terms of his field goal percentage in that Golden State Warriors series in large part because of the types of low-percentage shots that he was taking around the rim. Um, he did shoot the ball extremely well from three, though, uh, in that playoff run, and that's very exciting. The Ja Morant problem is the is the number one kind of like focal point of this offense. In the NBA playoffs this year, they were 13.2 points worse on offense with Ja off the floor versus when he was on the floor, right around 115 points per possession when he was on, right around 102 when he was off. The upside is, again – Jaw has proven that his offensive style does translate to the playoffs, and that's exciting. Moving on to the defensive end of the floor. So this is an extremely physical and strong, imposing defensive basketball team with tons of athleticism. They are super aggressive on ball handlers trying to disrupt the dribble. Uh, dribble, They're forward aggressive, willing to give up driving lanes. They weren't a great team defending the paint. I know uh, 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 Jaron Jackson Jr. was one of the best shot blockers in the league, and we'll get more into him here in a minute. But they weren't actually great at taking away the painted area because they are so aggressive on the perimeter to try to force turnovers and things like that to try to squeeze out transition possessions that they did give up a lot of straight line drives and give up a lot of baskets around the paint but they did lead the league in steals and blocks which is amazing that's how you end up with the sixth best defense in the league despite giving up quite a few points in the paint they were third in points off of turnovers compared to the rest of the league and they did defend the three-point line pretty well i think they were 11th in three-pointers made per game which when you factor in pace there it probably would have been even higher than that almost everyone outside of john morant on the roster is an above average defensive player That is what allows them to line up consistency throughout the game to be an imposing defensive team. And that's why when John Morant checked out of that series with a knee injury, the Grizzlies still were such a problem for Golden State because of what they were capable of doing on the defensive end of the floor. Jaron Jackson Jr. is the anchor of this defense. He led the league in total blocks by 40. He had 40 more blocks than Rudy Gobert, who was second in total blocks In the league, their scheme is pretty traditional outside of that. They run drop coverage with all three of their bigs, although they're more willing to switch if things go haywire with Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark than they are with Steven Adams. That's pretty standard across the league at this point. And once again, the biggest problem with their defense is the John Morant problem. So John Morant and what they can do without him is the biggest problem on the offensive end of the floor. And John Morant and what they can do with him is their biggest problem on the defensive end of the floor. It, uh, Grizzlies fans probably remember this with more rose-colored glasses than everybody else. But the truth of the matter was is that in that Minnesota Timberwolves series, Patrick Beverly was looking like a primary ball uh, uh, ball handler, consistently attacking John Morant. Not even in advantage situations, a lot of times just off the dribble. A lot of times in isolation, just taking John Morant to task and scoring at will. In general, their defense was horrific with him on the floor. They gave up, I want to say, about 113 points per 100 possessions in the Golden State series with him on the floor, which is pretty damn bad. That's that's going to be the big one of the bigger indicators of this team's future success is given John Morant's athleticism, and we all see the highlight plays, like him getting an insane block in transition, flying above the rim, and things along those lines, but at some point... John Morant is going to have to be able to hold his own defensively for this team to reach their ceiling, um, which is a great transition into their ceiling. So the ceiling for this Golden State Warriors team is if Jaron Jackson Jr. comes back quickly. Again, feet are feet are tough, um, not just for big men, but for everybody. I The one major injury I suffered when I was playing in college was a broken foot that was between my – Uh, juco season in Tucson and my second juco season, which was in Utah. And I really struggled with that. The main reason why is there's like a, a physical healing phase, and then there's a mental healing phase. And when I got back on the basketball court, even though I physically could do everything I needed to do, I didn't really trust my foot to hold up. And so I became very passive um, especially as a rebounder and on the defensive end of the floor. That was the main part in the early portion of that season where I struggled. I really struggled in non-conference play that season. And then right around January, I kind of broke through that mental wall and I regained the confidence in my foot. And then I took off from there and actually ended up making an all-conference team that year. But the first chunk of that season, I was pretty bad just by struggling with confidence with my foot. And so it'll be really interesting to see one, how quickly Jaron comes back and two how quickly he becomes what he was before the injury. And that's going to be something that needs, uh, that, uh, Grizzlies fans uh, should keep an eye on. But if he comes back quickly, if Desmond Bain takes a leap as a shot creator, if he improves in ball handling to the point where he can create his own shot, I, I don't think he has a quick enough first step to consistently beat high-level defenders off the dribble, but he's so big and strong that if he could learn to understand angles— while also having a really tight handle, he might be able to have a little bit more of a luca esque advantage creation type of deal where it's not about you know toasting dudes off the dribble and getting tons of separation, but rather getting a tiny bit of separation and shooting the gap with physicality and using your upper body to pin the defender out of position so you can methodically work your way into the lane. It's, it's a long shot to me because that type of thing takes years and years of diligent practice, but that would be a great... Uh, uh, indicator of what this team's ceiling could be, if John Morant could make improvements defensively, if John can stay healthy and all those things I just said, if John can stay healthy, because he did break down in this postseason run, and if he gets hot, especially as a jump shooter in the postseason and I do believe that John Morant will one day be a knockdown jump shooter, that's the textbook puncher's chance. When we were talking about tiers and we had the non-contenders and Now we're in the puncher's chance contenders, right? Like the Lakers aren't the most talented team in the league, but if LeBron and AD get hot, what are you going to do with them? You know, same thing with Cleveland Cavaliers, like not as talented as the best teams in the league, but if Donovan Mitchell gets hot with how good their defense is, that could be a problem. Same thing goes for this Memphis Grizzlies team. If they are as good defensively as they are capable of being, as long as John Morant takes that leap and he gets hot in a postseason run, particularly as a jump shooter because of how gifted he is getting to the basket. This team absolutely has a puncher's chance to win the title. But because of their limitations and shot creation, I don't think they're in that next tier You know, of that second-tier contenders or the top-tier contenders. The other thing that's interesting here is the jaw-officiating conundrum. I've talked about this three or four times on the show, um, but basically, John Moran is so gifted at beating people off the dribble, and he's so thin... And he's so athletic that when he goes flying through the lane, that even slight bumps can send him flying. Even slight bumps that wouldn't be considered a foul against the vast majority of ball handlers in the league. And so the bottom line is is that if John Morant catches a Dwayne Wade 06 type of officiating run, that could go a long way towards helping this team reach their ultimate ceiling. The worst case scenario is if Jaron Jackson Jr. misses most of the season, which can affect their seeding. Now they can end up in a five, six, seven, eight seed, which could put them on the road against a very good team in the first round of the playoffs—a team that they very well might be um, an underdog against. If Jaw continues to struggle on defense and shot creation limitations, if, if they don't improve as uh, in terms of shot creation outside of John ja Morant, they will continue to struggle in the half court, even with Jaw, and they will really mightily struggle when John ja Morant is off the floor, which will eventually get them beat. If those things take place, you know, if Jaw doesn't improve defensively, if they don't improve creating shots, if Jaron Jackson's injury costs them in seeding, this is a team that's going to lose in the first round. So I kind of I view that as their range of outcomes, kind of first round loss all the way to championship with anything in between based on how those factors turn out. The biggest X factor on this team is Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, I, I think that like he's such a freak talent with such hot and cold moments that he's a textbook X factor in my opinion, because he could just as easily lose you a playoff series with poor decision making as he can win it with incredibly imposing defensive rim protection and physically imposing rim pressure on the offensive end of the floor to go with outstanding perimeter shooting. Like he shot seven threes per game over the last seven playoff games and shot 40% on them over his last seven playoff games he averaged 19 points per game. He was an outstanding defensive player during that stretch. You know, I've compared him defensively to Anthony Davis with his combination of length and mobility. Um obviously he's not that level of defensive player yet, but it's certainly something that he's capable of doing. That's kind of the Anthony Davis mold though, right? Like Dominant defensive player, hyper-versatile, stretch big. He could be a poor man's version of Anthony Davis. If he could get to that level, which again, Anthony Davis I think was 18th in my top 25 this year because of how much he's regressed. If uh, if Jaron Jackson Jr. can get up to the 18th best basketball player in the world this season, which is absolutely doable with how talented he is, that could be a massive swing factor for this team. And if that sort of thing happens, they go from puncher's chance contender to that next tier, that if things go right contender, meaning if they stay healthy and they catch an injury break here or there, they are absolutely in that mix. So Very interesting Memphis Grizzlies team. Grizzlies fans, uh, uh, you know, we'll be covering them throughout the season. This is a team that I find to be extremely interesting. We'll learn more about their draft picks as they play along. It'll be interesting to see how they play without Jaron Jackson for chunks of the season. This is going to be one of the most interesting teams in the league over the course of the next half decade, and I am excited to cover them. So that's all I have on the Memphis Grizzlies. I I did, uh, as I promised at the beginning, I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes talking about uh, my set, just to tell you guys a little bit more about myself. So obviously I am a diehard, other way, diehard Star Wars fan. Um, I grew up uh, 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 watching the VHS tapes when I was a little kid and I've been in love with it ever since the beginning. I'm one of those diehard Star Wars fans that like reads all the expanded universe novels and like I've seen Clone Wars all the way through twice and I've seen Rebels all the way through twice and and uh, I actually do a, a Star Wars podcast with a uh, with a buddy of mine. Uh, my best friend, my buddy Luke, who also happens to be a diehard Star Wars fan. We release episodes typically every Wednesday. Um, It's called the Two Sons Podcast. We've been going through the Thrawn trilogy. Uh, uh, We just went through the Thrawn trilogy from when he was with the Empire, the books that they released a few years ago. Now we're going through the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy, which is based on uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn when he was with the Chiss Ascendancy, which is super, super interesting. He's one of my favorite Star Wars characters, and he's going to be a big one uh, coming up, I think, in the future as they go with Ahsoka and some of these other series. Anyway, Star Wars is a huge passion of mine. Uh, I wanted this to kind of represent the things that I love, and Star Wars is a a thing that I love a great deal, uh, and it's something that I invest a lot of time in. And if you ever want to hear me talk more about Star Wars, you can find that in my Star Wars podcast. Uh, My second favorite thing to do in the entire world is uh, to play guitar, and I it's one thousand percent an amateur thing. Uh, at least at this point in my life, you will never hear me play. Uh, it's not something that I that I uh, show off. It's something I do strictly for myself. My dad raised me on blues, a lot of like uh, the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers band. And from I got my first guitar uh, for my birthday when I was a kid from my grandmother. It was a Epiphone SG, and I played it for years, and then when i turned uh, when i started playing basketball in college i got away from it for a little while just because i couldn't travel with it from with everything that i was doing and and i kind of got out of playing and then uh a few years ago with my wife uh uh we were talking about it and i decided to get into it again and a big part of why i got back into it is this guy mr john mayer who you guys all probably know from uh, his mainstream stuff, which I I could take it or leave it. I don't dislike it. I find him to be freakishly talented. But uh, with his mainstream stuff, um, I never really thought it captured what he was capable of. And back in 2015, he started playing with the other older gentleman you see there, Mr. Bob Weir, who was one of the original guitarists for The Grateful Dead. And ever since 2016, they've been touring going to uh, a bunch of cities around the country and playing old Grateful Dead songs. And Grateful Dead is more of a jam band. You know, the songs are like 15 minutes long. It drives my wife freaking crazy. I'll never listen to that stuff around her uh, because she doesn't really enjoy it all that much. But it uh, it really has exposed what John Mayer is capable of as a guitar player. And I think John Mayer, I personally think John Mayer is the best guitar player of this particular generation. Some people would disagree with me. Some people would say Gary Clark Jr. Some people would say Derek Trucks. I I think technically in terms of his core style, as well as his versatility, the different types of music that he can play, not entirely unlike his Mainstream stuff that he plays versus this blues stuff all the way to old Texas blues like Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix and things along those lines. He's just as well rounded as it gets. And I, I, he's like my personal role model as a guitar player. Um, This right here is the first Dead & Company concert that I went to in Phoenix, Arizona. That was the poster that they made. They pay a professional artist to make a a detailed painting like that for every single show that they do, which I think is a really, really cool uh, uh, kind of like niche thing that they do. These are two of my favorite guitars. This was the one that my wife got me for my 30th birthday. This is a PRS CE24, um, just an incredible piece of woodworking. Uh, Gibson and Fender kind of have run the guitar game forever and, uh, PRS has kind of grinded their way up to about third place on that list. They're, uh, they're all their core models are American made and they're, I find their woodworking to be exquisite. One of my, one of my dreams is in the future, it costs about $20,000. So I don't plan on doing it for a long time. But one of my dreams is to go to their factory in Maryland and build a guitar from scratch. They call it their private stock collection, but you can actually like pick the kinds of wood that you wanna use. You could do special designs on the neck and things like that. That's one of my dreams. This is a good old fashioned Fender Stratocaster, a very unique uh, guitar sound that no other guitar can replicate. But yeah, so this just this is a little bit about uh, about myself. My number one love is basketball, it always will be. I live and breathe the game every single day of my life and I will until the day I die. Uh, But when it comes to things outside of that, I love me some Star Wars, and I love me some uh, blues guitar. So anyway, I hope that uh, teaches you guys a little bit more about myself. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys supporting the show, and we will be back tomorrow with number 10.